0: Welcome to another edition of the Hidden Layers Podcast, where we talk about all the exciting ways marketing, data, and deep learning are colliding. We love to talk about how AI and other technologies are affecting the world while hopefully learning a few things along the way. This episode, we're very lucky to have David Cox, a computational neuroscientist and machine learning researcher at IBM Research, where he is the director of the MIT-IBM Watson AI Lab, a joint research effort. Between MIT and IBM devoted to discovering what's next in artificial intelligence. He's also a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law School and is an agenda contributor at the World Economic Forum. Today, I'm very happy to also have a special guest co-host, Aaron Andelman, Dr. Aaron Andelman, co-founder with me at Cognitive and Chief Science Officer here. He's also a fellow neuroscience PhD student with David Cox at MIT. He was. Thanks to both of you for joining today, and uh, we're really excited to have both of you on the show. Yeah. Um, Thanks
1: for
2: inviting me. This was a lot it. of
1: fun.
0: I, um, maybe we could
1: kick it off by having you introduce um, the IBM, MIT IBM Watson AI Lab and maybe tell us a bit how um, you became the director. What was that path like?
2: Okay. Well, so the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab is a new kind of academic industrial collaboration. So it was announced just a little bit over a year ago that IBM was going to invest uh, almost a quarter billion dollars over 10 years to found a joint lab with MIT. And and the way this works is we we decided, you know, I, I think everybody recognizes that AI is going to transform Pretty much everything we do, and certainly um, you know enterprise is going to be changed in many, many ways by AI. And, and there was a there was a joint understanding between MIT and IBM that this is really where the future was. So we, we joined forces. Our, our model is a little bit different. Um, so while many uh, companies fund research in academia, um, we really are funding collaborations. So all of our projects are jointly conceived and jointly executed by IBM researchers and MIT faculty and students and postdocs. So we, we bring money to help fund research at MIT, but we also bring people. And we really look for shoulder-to-shoulder collaboration. And we're really focused on, even though we're a company and you might imagine that we'd be interested in applied machine learning, what we're really interested in is fundamental research, core AI techniques that are gonna really improve and you know expand the range of places where AI can be uh, can be can be used and can can you know, make more change in our world and you know improve the way we do everything that we do. So we're really excited. We think that MIT is the right partner for this, uh, and we've located ourselves here in Cambridge, right next door in Kendall Square, uh, and and the lab's just spinning up. But we're really excited about what's happening so far. And then you asked also uh, how I came to this position, so I, I should say. I'm a recovering academic, uh, so I, I was a professor at, at Harvard for, for a number of years. Um, and, of course, I did my graduate studies uh, at MIT with, uh, with Aaron. We were in the same class together. Um, and, you know I, I had always, uh, you know, I had always run a dual lab where about half of my lab was doing neuroscience, in particular computational neuroscience. But we were also always really interested in how biological intelligence and what we know about it and what we can study about it can influence, you know, artificial intelligence and and machine learning. So my lab was always kind of half and half people doing neuroscience and people doing machine learning. Uh, and, uh, you know, at some point IBM approached me and they were, they were particularly interested in having somebody with a very broad um, set of experience and a broad view of the field. Um, and it, it was it was exciting for me. I'm very excited in particular about this sort of hybrid between academia and industry that this
1: lab represents. How did IBM IBM find you? I'm just curious. What was the connection?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not not exactly sure how how, how IBM found me. Uh, You know, I've had a a number of touch points with them. So um, along the way, my lab had spawned a couple of startups. Um, So we had one startup that was doing autonomous vehicle uh, stuff they actually just raised a series a um, just a few weeks ago uh, but then we had another startup that was doing um, doing uh, AI for uh, radiology and, and for, for diagnosing uh, from images and that was something that was um, you know put us in contact with IBM uh, you know something that IBM was working in a similar space and and we, we got to know each other a little bit through those kinds of um, those interactions in in the startup space. Um, And then, you know, uh, as time went on, we, we, we got talking and, and, and here we are today.
0: So, so you said, David, you said that, you know, you're, you're very um, interested in the pure foundational science uh, in the research that you're doing. uh, Could you talk a little bit about that and the differences between, uh, look, my experience has always been that AI is, is applied, right? We're always looking for a solution to something, and AI is helping us solve that. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between what you're saying is is pure and what you know we do? A cognitive, for instance, which is you know, consumer behavior prediction, marketing applications, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, any any new technology is going to have a spectrum of of research going on from you know, foundational, fundamental research all the way to applied research and then sort of melding into, you know, things that that aren't research anymore, the the development, right? So um, IBM's strategy is no different there. So I I should say, you know, IBM is a 380,000-person company. Um, IBM Research is uh, about 5,000 people, uh, give or take. And about 1,000 of them are working on AI in one capacity or another. And so within that, we, you know, we're, we're big enough and we have a large enough scale. IBM Research has been around for over 70 years. We're sort of one of the last labs from that sort of Bell Labs, you know, sort of great industrial labs sort of era that's that's survived and persisted and, and flourished. And, uh, you know, we're, you know, so IBM can afford to have a spectrum of AI work that, that ranges from you know people trying to invent what are the next fundamental technologies to people who are doing research you know that they're it's pure research but they're really focused on how can today's AI techniques be adapted to solve problems in industry and then all the way into product right so we have you know people in the Watson business unit who are working on producing you know AI services uh, in the cloud we have people in our Watson Health division who are trying to tackle hard problems in, in healthcare. We have people in security who are trying to use AI to make our systems more safe and secure. Um, you know, and and you know that that's you know that's in contrast to where, where startups I think have to be. I mean, so we had several startups, and when you're when you're in startups, uh, my experience and maybe your experience has been different. Um, you know, startups really have to be about solving consumer problem you know like the problems of your customers so very often um, you know you have to kind of dial back and say okay you know you can't follow necessarily always whatever is the latest you know fashion uh, in, in the latest academic conferences you have to kind of take the stuff that, that really really works and sort of battle tested and then really 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 focus hard on what's the customer problem and that's and that's great and and we do an awful lot of that here at IBM both within our industry research organization, um, which does applied machine learning and applied AI, and then also within our business units, which, which are, are really focused on, on building and scaling out uh, solutions. Where we fit into the ecosystem, though, is really to say, you know, we're, we're, we're not a philanthropy, right? So we're not, we're not the same as academia, but uh, we, we do have industry perspective but we are focused on those fundamental advances. So, so the, the distinction there really is about, rather than looking at what AI technologies we have today and matching to what problems we can solve today, what we're really looking at is what problems do our customers have that today's AI technologies serve poorly. So like for instance, uh, deep learning is fantastic if you have tons and tons of you know, high quality curated labeled data. Um, but you know, if you don't, and you know your problems, you know, it, you know, not necessarily a, always a big data problem. Where you don't, even if you have big data, oftentimes our, we find our customers don't have big labels or big annotations. So the question is then, how how do you deal with that? We we have an existence proof that it's possible to operate in those environments, and certainly you know our own brains, our own ability, we know it can be done. We know natural intelligence can work with limited data. Can make you know inferences from lim- limited data, um, but you know there's a gap, right? There's a gap between what today's AI techn- you know, core AI technologies are able to allow us to do, uh, and and between that and what our customers need to really address every single part of everything they're doing. So, n- hands down, no question, deep learning can address many important problems in uh, in enterprise, in media, in you know, you name your industry. Uh, and IBM will certainly sell products to you that can solve those problems. Um, but there, there are many problems where it just, it's just not on the table yet. And that's really where we're focused. We're focused on trying to, you know, identify those problem areas, line them up, uh, you know, knock them down, you know, with, with, with fundamental research. And we find that uh, this, is, this really matches nicely to what academia also wants to do, to take that longer view on saying, hey, okay,
1: what's tomorrow's AI look like and how can we, how can we build that? yeah i mean following up on that i'm interested in this hybrid collaboration between academia and industry and and i'm wondering you know from your personal experience how has the process of sort of getting those two um, worlds aligned on which projects to fund um been going like are there any experiences you've had where it's been perfectly smooth or experiences where it's been challenging to sort of get the, the IBM perspective aligned with the MIT perspective?
2: Yeah, I, I, I've actually been really pleasantly surprised at how smoothly it's going. It's not to say that it's easy. I, I think one of the reasons why it made sense for IBM to hire uh, someone like me who came out of academia to help run this from their side was you know there there definitely is a little bit of you know an impedance mismatch between the way that academics see the world and the way that industry sees the world and and it's certainly the case that you know this isn't the normal model for collaboration so the norm there's like two normal models for industry and academia collaborating and and I've kind of participated in both of them one is uh, it's not uncommon at all for industry just to like, give money to academia to fund research and when I was in, in academia I I like that model very much. Uh, you know, companies would come, various, you know, uh, you know, Google or whoever could come, and they they'd give me money, and I would take that money, and I'd say thank you, and then I'd, you know, to a first approximation, go off and do whatever I was going to do with that money anyway. And really, there was a tacit understanding that the reason they were doing that was to have an option on, you know, hiring my students out from under me, and it, it was totally fine. You know, they they were helping fund the research; they could, you know, do that, and and it it, it, was, it was okay, but it was limited, right? So. IBM uh sort of the industry player wasn't getting you know wasn't getting intellectual property necessarily out of it or they weren't sort of steering their own research agenda with it it was much more of a of a of a hiring play and then meanwhile you know the, you know there wasn't you know wasn't a necessarily a very deep relationship that I had with those those funders the other model of course is is the is the poaching model so you know uh, in in the summer of 2015 uh, Uber came to Pittsburgh, and they funded a bunch of pilot projects with Carnegie Mellon University. And they liked those projects so much that they went and they hired en masse 40 faculty uh, from the robotics department at Carnegie Mellon, sort of picked them up, moved them a few blocks down the road, dropped them back down, and said, okay, now you guys are Uber Pittsburgh. Now, that's totally legal. That's totally fair. You can do that. I'm sure everybody, uh, all the former CMU profs, are very happy with their new salaries. But, you know, that's kind of like an extractive model where – you know, and this is this has happened all over the place. There are many faculty who do AI in various capacities who've been sort of poached out of out of academia and again, you know it's a free market they can do that. but you know our our position was that that's kind of that's you know killing the golden goose or eating the seed corn whatever you know pick your metaphor it's It's taking something that was distinctive in academia and 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 you know destroying it in some sense or or damaging it so we wanted to have a model that was much more working together. And I honestly, the biggest challenge with that model has not been, uh, it's really just been communicating the model. I mean, I, I think the biggest problem, you know, which, which isn't really a problem. It's just more of a, of a challenge around educating everyone of what we're trying to achieve. And, and, you know, the response we've gotten has actually been really great. So there's been a sense in which, you know, I think everyone, the way we, we work is we have a, we have an open call for proposals. Those proposals have to be collaborative, have to be co-written by uh, MIT faculty and IBM researchers, and then we jointly review them and then we green light them. And I think part of the process of learning in this collaboration has really been MIT understanding, like, no, no, we really meant that, we're, we're here, we're, we're bringing, you know, really high quality researchers to the table who are helping out the research. And you know, in, in the best collaborations, we have you know effectively the our researchers, you know, become you know part of that community. So they're going to the lab meetings, they're helping to advise the graduate students, and the MIT faculty. And again, in the best cases, are really seeing that as a huge resource because you know all of a sudden there's this you know additional channel of adult supervision. They're able to publish more. They're able to get access to resources they wouldn't be able to get access to otherwise. So that's really what we're trying to achieve. We really want to work hmm. together, and you know, that's a two-way street, right? So we get to see, um, you know, MIT's perspective on what the future of AI looks like, but they also get to see, you know, that practical, you know, that that product—not not not slavishly product-driven, but project-informed uh, perspective really helps steer the research towards things that will have genuine impact. And and when we can bring that all together. I think there's really a potential to have it be much more than the sum of its parts.
1: Are there any, um, before we move on to the next section, are there, are there any um, synergies that you've observed in these proposals where you feel like IBM is bringing something, or IBM and MIT are bringing something as a unit that wouldn't happen if they were, you know, conducting their research separately? Yeah,
2: I, I think there are many cases where that's, where that's true. I mean as a generic high level industry and academia bring different things to the table. So academia, you know, tends to have a young and dynamic workforce of so their faculty, but as we all know, most of the work gets done by graduate students and these are Smart, ambitious people in their 20s, you know, taking some of the best years of their life to, you know, explore and, and be free and whatever. And that, and there's like a five-year turnover uh, typically. You know, a PhD takes you know five, six years. So there's a, it's a very dynamic workforce. It's a very young workforce. It's very challenging in academia to have experienced uh, professionals, right? Like when I was at Harvard, um, basically we, we had some you know experienced engineers experienced uh, researchers um, but to, to get that we needed you know that that was almost exclusively the problem the province of these large ARPA grants so I had a, a large ARPA contract that I was running and that was basically the only way I could hire I could afford to pay the salaries that you needed to get an experienced professional in the context of academia in contrast in an in industry, that's the norm, right? Like, so we, we do have young people. Of course, we have postdocs. Actually, IBM is relatively unique in that we have, um, you know, postdocs within industry. But you know, people can grow and develop and remain technical. That's actually a really key part. In academia, it tends to be the case that it, there's an upper or out kind of structure where you're either a grad student or a postdoc, or you're running your own lab. Uh, so, and as you run your own lab, you know, it's possible to stay you know, with, with your fingers in the technical work to an extent, but there's increasingly a pull to make you more and more of a manager. Within industry there's actually a, a path where you can just stay technical your entire career. And and even in IBM, that goes all the way up into the executive layer of the company. There's something called an IBM fellow, which is, you know, basically a technical person who stayed technical their entire career. They didn't become necessarily become a manager. They, they, you know, you, you could remain just being really good at what you do, hands on the keyboard, writing code as long as you like. So, that is a really interesting mix we find, where we can have sort of, again, sort of uh, adult supervision isn't quite the right word, but you can have experienced people who've been researchers for a long time. You can have experienced engineers. You can just have a lot more engineering support in general within a company, and then you mix that with you know, academia where you have faculty who are, you know, top of their field thought leaders, but then also this sort of dynamic churn of of young people with, with fresh ideas. And I think that's a really powerful combination uh, on the staffing front. And w- we have collaborations that work where both sides are doing unique uh, AI research. Um, we have collaborations where MIT where IBM is bringing the AI expertise, and then MIT is bringing some other expertise like biology or chemistry, um, and and those are interesting, and that's absolutely within scope for what we do. And then, uh, you know, and we have every basically every possible combination of you know sort of different roles that we can play. But we find that there's lots of complementary strength there. And then on top of that, the other thing that a company like IBM can bring, which a university like MIT will struggle with is compute resources and data. So it's just simply the case that, um, you know, AI research, deep learning in particular, is incredibly resource-intensive the way we're doing it today. So even to reproduce some of the results that are coming out of industrial labs requires more GPUs, basically, than many academic players can get access to. Uh, The other issue is data. So oftentimes, even if, Academics want to make an impact on a particular field, say a field in healthcare. Um, if you don't have access to the data to do that, you you just can't do the research. Where a company like IBM, you know, we we through acquisitions, you know, have millions of you know insurance claim records. We have millions of uh, you know electronic health records uh, entries and co-registered with each other and all these kinds of things. And that's true across many many different industries. So that gives us that gives the academics sort of unique data sets. Compute resources to deal with them, and and kind of a different and complementary kind of workforce that they can work with.
0: Yeah,
1: that's a great that's a great explanation of the, of the synergies that are there. All right,
0: um, Jeremy. Yeah. So, so I was wondering actually, I was curious about what a computational neuroscientist is. Um, how, how how does that how does neuroscience it, how is neuroscience being combined with uh, with machine learning and artificial neural networks and these types of things. Yeah,
2: so uh, computational neuroscientist means different things to different people. Uh, you know, you know, it's like the the fiddler and the violinist, and you know, the, the difference is how much they get paid. Um, you know, I, I think uh, the the key thing for me, you know, different people have different takes on this, but the the, the basic idea is that the no, basic premise is, you know, if we're looking to intelligence, if we're looking at Um, natural, just intelligence in general, the only existence proof we have, the only examples we have of a system that does what we want to do are artificial systems, sorry, natural systems, biological systems. The brain is the one thing that we have to model things on. Now, it's not a given that we're going to get to artificial intelligence by slavishly copying biological intelligence. But, at the same time, I think the two fields, neuroscience, which is basically the study of biological intelligence, and AI, which is the study of artificial intelligence, I I think there's just so many opportunities for for information and inspiration to flow both directions. So increasingly, neuroscientists are using deep learning and AI and modern machine learning techniques to help them understand what the brain might be doing. And then I, I will argue, and this is maybe a slightly more controversial claim, that there's a lot of inspiration that flows the other direction as well so that, you know, things, a lot of the things we do in, in deep learning, you know, have, have at least loose connections to things that were inspired from from neuroscience. I, I think in many ways that's not, uh, that's, uh, there's much, I, I think there's a lot of unrealized potential there, you know, in a, in a lot of ways the, the artificial neurons we have in neural networks are are incredibly simple compared to the complexity of what seems to be going on in the brain. And I would argue that there's great potential, uh, again, for whether it be through inspiration or direct sort of, um, you know, input of knowledge to, to understanding uh, and being inspired by what we learn about the brain uh, to drive, you know, new ideas in in machine learning. So,
0: and, you know, part I, of the and I agree, I agree with well, that. Because,
1: yeah. Uh-huh. I agree with that perspective. And actually it leads us to a, a question I had, which is, um I, I agree that the sort of the neurons we use in artificial neural networks are very simplified, and that there's you know a much greater diversity of neuron types and neurotransmitters in a, in a biological brain. And I was curious what the lab's perspective is on, on whether investing in research on how real brains learn um, will help. Push AI forward, and whether the lab is actually making those sorts of investments.
2: Yeah, that that that's a great question. So, um, so so the answer is is to first approximation, yes. So, we, we do have a growing neuroscience, neuro AI group here at at IBM. So we're we're hiring people who share that vision that there's crossover, um, and we are collaborating with with. A number of people in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences, where where Aaron and I did our PhDs, um, who are interested in this nexus of neuroscience and AI. And, and I, I think I, I agree with you. It's sort of like you know, it's possible that all the additional, the apparent additional complexity in brains, isn't important, and that it's epiphenomenal, and that it has nothing to do with computation. But I I, I think I personally think it's unlikely. I, I think I think there's a lot I agree. going on there. That, that, that we could learn from, that we could do more with. And and I think, you know, I, I also have this feeling that even if I'm wrong, um, it's still the case that neuroscientists and people with neuroscience backgrounds make excellent AI researchers. Um, just, just because there's, there's something about um, the training that a neuroscientist gets in sort of staring into the, the void of a, of a black box system, you know, in this case a brain, and then thinking about how you would interrogate it, how you would look at it, how you would, how you would understand it. And, you know, there, there have been many cases of sort of leaders in the field. You know, Google was was uh, very early in hiring neuroscientists to do some of the early work in Google Brains, part of why they called the Google Brain. People like Greg Carrado and, and um, Jonathan Schlenz, you know, people coming directly out of neuroscience. There's lots of examples of people, and certainly DeepMind has hired quite a few neuroscientists uh, who are doing really interesting work that, that that doesn't necessarily just stand, you know, it it doesn't have to make the excuse that it's neuroscience-inspired AI. It's it's cutting-edge AI, and it's being informed by neuroscience ideas, and it's being driven by people who have that training in empirical neuroscience that really gives them, you know, that, that kind of interesting perspective. So, you know, some people would say that, you know, we're, we, we won't be able to do AI until we fully copy the brain. I, I don't go on that extreme. Some people say that it's foolish to look at AI, sorry, sorry, it's foolish to look at the brain because, you know, we didn't learn to fly by looking at birds. That's actually not true. We did actually, if you look at the Wright brothers, they did look at birds quite a bit. Um, But, you know, I I, I take kind of a more flexible sort of view where I think we'd be foolish not to look hard at the brain. And, And even if the inspirations we draw are loose and even if they're indirect, I think we just, there's just so much potential there just to get fresh ideas. And I wouldn't I would I wouldn't tell anyone who thought the other view that they were wrong. And if you wanna get inspiration from physics, if you wanna get inspiration from, you know, other branches of biology, I think that's great too. But I, I think there's just a lot to be gained by keeping up with neuroscience. The other piece I would just say about neuroscience is, um, you know, neuroscience is certainly undergoing a revolution as well. And the ability, just the sheer, um, you know, volume of data we can get and the specificity of data we can get with new neuroscience methods, uh, I think is happening at a fortuitous time where I think there's increasing potential for neuroscience really to to have a better dialogue because there's just better tools that let us understand the system
1: that much better. I tend to agree. Jeremy, so, you want so to why jump don't why, into the third
0: section? Yeah, why, why don't we, we move into sort of the vision of the future, and uh, why we're all doing this, right? Why why are we putting so much time and effort into AI? And I saw you speak at Progress Connect in Boston. I was hoping you could repeat a little bit, sort of the broad strokes, uh, so to speak, of what you said there about the evolution of AI from sort of today's specific AI to this term of broad AI uh, and what those distinctions mean. I think that's uh, that would be really important for our listeners to understand.
2: Yeah, so um, so I will say that, you know, uh, I'm, I, I, I run a lab that has AI in the name of the lab. My business card says AI on it twice. You know, before 2018, I was really uncomfortable with the term AI, artificial intelligence. I think we all were, and particularly academics, were really uncomfortable with the idea of AI. Uh, we really wanted to call it machine learning or deep learning. Um, and then for whatever reason, you know, in 2018, I think we all kind of gave up and just everybody's calling it AI now. It's, it's just the way it is. But, um, but when I came to IBM uh, I, they, I found that they had done something actually that I really liked. So there's something called the Global Technology Outlook that IBM does every year. It's sort of an internal visioning process where they figure out what the future is gonna look like. And they came up with a, a way of, sort of parsing up AI that I, I really like personally. And what they did is they, they basically just put adjectives in front of the term AI and they made a distinction between narrow AI, which is what we have today, Broad AI, which is what's coming next, and then general AI. And you know, general AI basically is all of the you know discussion of you know broadly autonomous systems and Skynet and you know what it is going to be conscious, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's interesting to talk about philosophically, but you know, it, it's so far away that it, it's 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 a bit of a distraction when we're really talking about how we build the tools that, that businesses need to run. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, though, today's AI. Um, what does it mean for it to be narrow? It doesn't mean it's not powerful. So today's AI is incredibly powerful if your problem is, you know, sort of able to be addressed by it. So what what are the limitations? Well, it's one thing. Well, so single task, single domain, you need lots and lots of data, lots and lots of labels. And if you have those, then you can do, you know, perhaps superhuman ability, You can do superhuman speed. You know, like a canonical example would be looking at medical images, right? Like if you have enough labeled medical images, it's not hard to get to a point where the system can be trained with more medical images than a human doctor would see in, you know, hundreds of years of practicing medicine. So, you know, if you're in that special sweet spot, then, you know, today's AI can do great things for you. And again, IBM plays in in that territory and if if your problem is addressed by by those technologies, IBM will sell you great solutions that that get you there. But then if you look ahead though, not every problem is like that. And that's where we really think that the battlefront, the really interesting work and the area where this lab, the MIT, IBM Watson AI lab, really can play is in this area of what we call broad AI. So that's where you know, you're taking information from one domain and applying it to another. So you have, you know, transfer. You have knowledge uh, applied to different places. You have multimodal data, so integrating data from multiple senses, multiple sensors, image data, speech data, structured data, unstructured data, text. You know, all that being able to leverage that together. Um, having systems that are secure. So increasingly, we're finding that today's AI uh, techniques have interesting security vulnerabilities. So we think that security is going to be a, an incredibly important part of every part of everything we do, and whenever we expose an AI system, you know, to data from the world. And then another piece of it, which is incredibly important, is explainability. So, one thing that we find when we talk to customers is that you know everybody knows that AI is going to transform their business. Uh, you know, that, that's true of every industry, that's true of media, that's true of uh, healthcare, that's true of everything. Um, but you know, it's as much a change in how people work as it is a change in technology. So companies have to have a people transformation that's accompanying that technical transformation. And for that to happen, really, the technology needs to meet people halfway. So if a system makes a decision, for for humans to accept that decision and be able to do something reasonable with it, the system has to be able to explain itself better than than we traditionally have systems today. We, We can't have black boxes. And if the system makes a mistake, we better be able to explain why that system made that mistake, and then related to this is this issue of bias. So we, we need to be able to understand why our system makes decisions when it makes decisions, and when those we have to make sure that those decisions aren't biased in ways we didn't intend. So all of these things, you know, we see as inhibitors to you know AI being um, you know sort of deployed broadly in into the enterprise. And then the last piece that that we see, you know, and this is something we do invest in. In this lab, is you know if you look at um, AI technologies today, just purely looking at the power consumption of computing, by some estimates, by the year 2040, if computing keeps on its current track of power utilization, we're going to exceed the power budget of the planet Earth by 2040. So there won't be enough solar radiation coming from the sun or enough stuff we can dig up out of the Earth and burn to be able to fuel our computing habit. And that's even if you leave aside Bitcoin and all these other things that are sort of uh, chewing up energy. So if we're going to have AI really get to the level that it needs to get to, we're going to need to come up with lower power ways to do that. And we have a whole pillar of our lab that's focused around physics of AI, so building new kinds of computing architectures, including analog computing, that are much lower power so you can have AI at the edge and, and be doing so those next-generation things. And this is actually a place where neuroscience is, is, is interesting and instructive because we have an existence proof that, you know, while I'm talking to you right now, my brain is dissipating about 20 watts of power. Uh, and then meanwhile, my computer, which is sitting in front of me, has, you know, a 40-watt power supply. Um, so we know, you know, basically my, my brain is running on sandwiches and this computer here is running on, you know, coal-fired <laughs> power plants for electricity. So there's an existence proof that can be done for lower power. We just haven't gotten there yet so we're really interested you know holistically and like if you want to get ai everywhere then we're also going to have to solve this power problem and that's a place where ibm has great strength in terms of you know semiconductor physics and uh you know physics in general and all the stuff to to come up with new computing architectures that can drive us forward
0: amazing so we don't have much time left i i have been a little bit obsessed with one last topic, which is maybe much closer than than the idea of Skynet and broad AI and all these things. But we did a podcast with Martin Ford, who wrote Rise of the Robots. And uh, he's a big proponent, or at least he believes that it's inevitable that we will get to a basic income guarantee, because where AI and automation of human tasks is going, uh, we will automate out many of the jobs, especially the lower-paying jobs, uh, in the world, in the United States, etc. Do you spend any time thinking about that as you as you do this research um, and and try to push this field forward? You know, what are the uh, implications of uh, this? Do you believe in basic income guarantees? Is um, is going to happen? What do you what do you see in the future of AI automation? Yeah. This
2: is this is something I think a lot about. And actually within the lab we also fund economists who are working on this very issue. Uh, so we, we collaborate with Eric Benorson, who's, you know, a, a a big thinker on this area, looking at how AI is going to change the labor market. Um you know, the way I think about it, uh so so I I I, I agree that many tasks in the near term, many tasks are going to be replaced by AI, and this is Eric's Position as well, um, and then and there'll be disproportionate um, impact. So some some jobs will be almost completely replaced in in the long run. Other jobs will be partially replaced. You know, uh, there's a saying that utopia that dystopia is when AI takes your job, and dystopia uh, sorry utopia is where AI takes parts of your job away. Um, and, and I think I think understanding that transition is going to be really important. Um, I think IBM's position really is that. For the near term uh, and for the foreseeable future, we want to see how AI can be augmentative so it can really make make your life easier, make you more productive, make um, you know ma- make you a better version of yourself, give you superpowers, not replace you. Um, and in that sense, I think you know when we talk about universal basic income, i I personally support universal basic income. I think it makes a ton of sense. I think there are sound economic arguments for it. I think when you start thinking about universal basic income, one way to think about what AI is, then it's almost like a natural resource, right? It's like, it's like a, it's like a, you know, like just the same way as like oil comes up out of the ground, uh, you know, that adds to the sovereign wealth, you know, the nation and then the nation decides how they distribute that bounty that comes from the earth. I think AI is going to be in many ways the same, or the ideal way that we play this game going forward is, is, is the same. So AI now becomes, A bounty of labor right like of, of a new kind of labor of intellectual labor and it's up to us as a society to decide how do we distribute the riches that come from that and certainly in the case of you know i think the natural resource example is instructive because there are nations like nordic nations that have oil reserves and they choose to distribute that wealth in such a way to enrich their people to give them more education to invest in their people, there are other nations that have significant oil wealth that don 't make that that choice and have you know commensurately different outcomes. so I think a big part of what going forward we need to do is really to look hard at if we if we see this you know this increase in you know the overall wealth this sort of bounty coming from from new technology from AI um, how do we, as a civilization, how do we, as society, decide we're going to distribute that those riches? And I, I think we can do that. I think we have the, the you know the, that that that's what governments can do. And I think we, as the as a, the people who who ultimately, you know, drive those governments, uh, you know, through through our votes, need to educate ourselves and and really to start taking a stand. And the technical community, in particular, needs to really advocate for us making policies that will ensure that 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 wealth, that that sort of natural, this new bounty uh,
0: really works for us, not against us. Well, that's a great, I think, wrap-up for us. Thank you so much for spending the time with us, David. And thank you, Aaron, for being my co-host this time on Hidden Layers. We look forward to uh, everybody coming back and hearing our next episode. Thank you all. Have a good day. Thank you. All right, well, that's it, and they'll cut us off. Have you heard? Metro by T Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 4 p Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions. Ugh! This phone drives me crazy. Excuse me, I'm the Sprinter and from Sprint. Try my new iPhone 10R with an amazing liquid retina display. This is amazing. Mind if I snap a few photos? Look at that color. I love this display. I, uh, I'm gonna need that back.
2: Switch to Sprint and get iPhone 10R 64GB for $0 per month with an eligible trade-in and a SprintFlex lease. Visit a
0: Sprint store, Sprint.com slash iPhone, or call 1-800-SPRINT-1.
1: Phone $0 per month for 18 months after $31.25 per month credit applied within two bills. If cancel early, remaining balance due. excludes tax subject to credit. $30 activation fee. Coverage and offer not everywhere. Restrictions apply